0: Welcome to Coffee and Change, a podcast where we talk about change in our lives, our work, and our world, and how we're managing it. Welcome back. On this episode, I had the honor and pleasure of interviewing a friend of mine, Kevin Walling, who's the vice president of digital at Hamburger Gibson Creative. There, he helps deliver innovative messages for campaigns and candidates, causes and institutions seeking to create meaningful change. Together we talk about how candidates and campaigns reach constituents and citizens in different ways in what they call a four-screen world. Considered a campaign operative by training, Kevin has advanced progressive policies on Capitol Hill, in state legislatures, and on a local level for over a decade. This proved to be a timely conversation, as Kevin and I talked about the power of digital, social media, and even Facebook and the effects on politics. And right after our conversation, news broke that Mark Zuckerberg was meeting with President Trump in the Oval Office.
1: Yeah, Bill, it's great to be with you. Uh, My name is Kevin Walling. I serve uh, in a a few different capacities. I'm based here in Washington, D.C., um, I work as a consultant to political campaigns and progressive groups, um, really advising them on media strategy, um, both in terms of traditional kind of TV and radio, um, and I also head up our digital practice, and it's a firm called uh, HG Creative. Um, and we work with a whole host of candidates. We mainly work with folks running for Congress. Um, we do some Senate races. Um, we do a lot of ballot initiatives, so um, we do a lot of the marijuana decriminalization, um, legalization fights on the state level. We do a lot of good government reform. We do voter access. Um, We passed, uh, help pass um, automatic voter registration, for example, in Nevada last cycle. Um, So we do a lot of work uh, in this space. We work with a lot of progressive groups, unions. Um, We're doing an effort right now with NARAL um, in their involvement in the Kentucky governor's race, for example. And we design Um, and formulate communication strategies, mainly um, in TV, mainly in digital, to reach voters, persuade them, and turn them out. Um, I also serve uh, oftentimes as a commentator on television um, and on radio, Um, uh, most recently uh, working with Fox News and Fox Business Channel, um, providing kind of a democratic perspective. I think a lot of folks and your listeners think um, they have uh, a bias towards more conservative views, and I think that's you know, well documented. And I think, you know, with 8 million Americans who voted for Barack Obama, that then voted for Donald Trump across the country, many of them are watching um, Fox and Fox Business. Um, And I want to reach those folks as a Democrat and, and hopefully bring them back to our fold. So that's kind of a quick synopsis of what I do every day. That is uh, a lot
0: of stuff that you do, and certainly no <laughs> small mission that you're taking on talk about purpose. Um, I mean, you listed just a few initiatives and ballots, and like uh, you, you know I, I don't say this uh, you know too simply, but like life changing stuff I mean you're talking about voter registration, you're talking about legalization of cannabis, you're talking about um, you know medical uh, when you know when you think about these things, and you as you were talking about them, I was kind of envisioning the the old fashioned sort of ballot and the initiatives and how people found out about this stuff. I would love to hear from from you and your perspective of both your role and as someone who's been on the other side as a candidate, like how is this changing? I mean, you think about digital and the power of you know connecting and the power of we could talk about social media and, and all of that stuff. but how is digital changing the way that we educate, engage, and empower citizens
1: and constituents
0: from your, from your standpoint?
1: Yeah, Bill, it's a great question. And, and of course, it's changing week to week. Um, it's interesting, um, there's new reporting right now out of Axios this week that's really highlighting the power of digital organizing when it comes to, for example, campaign finance, um, and, and the way these campaigns have been fundraising over this last year. Um, numbers out this morning show that 2.4 million individual Americans have given online to a political campaign running for president on the Democratic side. That's huge. That's a 70% increase from where we were last cycle. So clearly citizens are feeling really empowered with the state of this race on the presidential level. And and we can drill down on on the local level and local races and and things like that. And you're right, I ran um, for office and, and served Uh, as a Democratic Party chair in Montgomery County, Maryland. Um, But at least on the the national scope, the national scale, we're seeing record involvement right now at this point when it comes to fundraising. Um, Those 2.4 million Americans have donated close to $210 million thus far um, and really are taking ownership, I think, of these campaigns in a way that we haven't seen before. Obviously, when you make a donation, you put your name on the line. I was with uh, the former vice president, um, last week in Houston for the debate. Um, I don't work for the campaign. I, I'm a big believer in his and many folks that are running. And maybe we can talk about that as well. But he said something sure. really poignant in a, in a small kind of community gathering. He said, when you sign your name on a check or you make that donation, that's an investment in me and um, the shared beliefs that we have. So the fact that already 2.4 million Americans have done that at this point in the cycle um, I think is really telling. I think from where we are at politically right now um, in the state of the Trump administration and the Trump campaign, they're also having you know record success uh, online. 61% right now of the money that the Trump um, uh, campaign has raised has been from these low-dollar donations. And they're pouring millions of dollars into acquisition and fundraising right now on Twitter and Facebook to get these folks involved. So I think the real story at this point in in the narrative, in the the arc of this political campaign, is the financial success that all these candidates are having, um, which is really staggering. Of course, then, when you raise that money, you spend it on communication tools um, in a way that we haven't seen before. Um, Most folks are suggesting that over a billion dollars will be spent online. In terms of voter outreach, that's separate from acquisition and fundraising. That's kind of reaching voters with a message and, and persuading them to turn out. Um, they spent about $900 million uh, in 2018. Uh, half of that, you know, as you said before, you mentioned social media, was spent on Facebook. Um, interestingly enough, we, we, uh, the, the industry is kind of lagging behind when it comes to re- reporting in, in real time. So we had no idea that, for example, the Trump campaign spent $70 million just on Facebook alone in 2016. That blew everyone out of the water. Um, and I think was one of the reasons why he was successful. Um, was that he was having this conversation with people on an individual level, meeting voters where they're at um, through social media. Um, and we're now kind of adapting to that, I think, on, on the Democratic side.
0: Yeah, I would love to kind of dig in there a little bit. Um, I, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily need to remind listeners or you or me of the, the trust issue. Um, but when you think about, sure. you don't have to rehash kind of all of the you know, the Facebook scandal and the and the trust issue, um, I think it is still very much a balancing act, and people are trying to figure that out. And I, I lose sleep over that a little bit as well. And even as a citizen and a constituent and a consumer, like I have this battle with myself, do I – Do I get off the platforms? Do I get off Mm -hmm. Facebook? Because I don't really trust what's coming at me. I mean, obviously, Facebook's trying to do some of the verified stories, things like that. You probably know much more about this in your world than I do in mine, but I would just love to anchor the question around trust. Um, Mm -hmm. You've seen a number of campaign cycles. You've been in campaign cycles. Do you think that the trust is getting better, staying the same, getting worse? And how has digital engagement, communications
1: affected that? Yeah, I mean, you you hit the nail on the head in terms of the, the conversations that are happening right now. And, and in fact, um, you know, as we talked this morning, Mark Zuckerberg is, is preparing for his second day on Capitol Hill. He's actually trying to rebuild trust one one on one with members of the United States Senate. Um, he was on Capitol Hill yesterday and um, and is back uh, up there this morning um, because they, they do have a serious problem, right? not obviously uh, alone with the interference from a hostile foreign government with Russia um, utilizing these platforms, but they played on our fears. They played on our insecurities of Americans and just further that conversation. Um, So I think, you know, they need to rebuild trust completely. And you see the attorneys general of all 50 states um, and, and the various territories also now suing Google over privacy concerns and data manipulation, right? So this also follows on um, not just what Google has been faulted for in the past and Facebook, not just with Russia, but also too in in working with political consultants like Cambridge Analytica, which harvested that data and used it for means that, that didn't have the sign off of individual voters, um, you know, exercising their right to, to engage with their peers on online. Um, So, uh, you know, I struggle with this as a digital consultant, right? There's so much data that's out there where by every voter um, is scored with different models. You bring in all the commercial data that's actively uh, available out there, what folks subscribe to in terms of magazines, what they donate to in terms of political campaigns, what they buy on a regular basis. And you form that with the voter file. And you can build these really stunning profiles of each individual voter that I know that Bill Kirst lives at this address. I've got access to his mobile device, to his browser data. I know that he's passionate about any host of different issues. And I can tailor um, campaign material, video creative, that speaks to what Bill uh, in particular is passionate about. Um, We're getting to very... uh, you know, interesting, I think, times when it comes to what data is available out there for individual voters and how that data is used to persuade and engage. And that conversation is ongoing. You know, we have to obviously anonymize the data. um, So I can't say that Bill watched this ad for this long, but I can say that Bill was part of this group of voters that we know are passionate about the environment that live in Seattle um, and target with a specific message along those lines. So there are some inherent protections in place, but again, we're we're light years from where we were just you know in 2008 when we think Barack Obama um, really uh, and with Howard Dean before him in 2004 really recognized the power of online organizing and, and social media and digital technology. We're light years from where we were just a decade ago in terms of that kind of personal outreach online. It's a really interesting question, Bill.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think back to, um, I mean, obviously, you know, my even as you describe the way that the data is um, aggregated, amalgamated, you know, put together to inform, you know, my heart starts to race a little bit because I have had incidents, you know, where you do, you you realize when that stuff is coming at you that it's curated to an exact science. I mean, this is a data mm-hmm. science Um and in some ways, if you step back, you can say, wow, this is a real advancement. And in another way, you step back and say, wow, this is a real intrusion. Um, and I, and I, you know, I think it's interesting because even as you describe um, the history, and I'm, I'm a, uh, you know, an ever-learning, lifelong learning student of history, and I believe it's important for us to look back and understand what happened in order to kind of understand where we're going. And as you talk about, you know, um, the Obama campaign, I do remember in 2008, um, you know, the the how powerful it felt to sort of share the ease with which it felt to be able to share something from the Obama campaign on Facebook or social media. And, and I do remember some people in those social streams kind of being like, wow, I didn't realize you were working for the campaign or supporting the campaign. And, and the ease with which you could just sort of share and put it out there and, and get a different um, platform was really powerful at the time. I also felt it was pretty powerful to go door to door in Northern Virginia. Mm -hmm. Um, And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, I think I I may have shared this story with you in the past, but it's probably worth telling again. I remember the campaign at the time said to me, hey, you're a military officer. Um, We'd like you to go to this part of uh, Northern Virginia uh, where there's probably a lot of military people. Mm -hmm. And we'd like you to go knock door to door. And say that you're going to, you know, vote for Obama, and this is why, and hand them some stuff. And I had some really interesting interactions. And um, you know, I would knock on the door, and the door would open. And a lot of times, what I had was voter registration information for people who had turned 18 or recently 18, but still living at home. So I would, you know, as you probably know all too well, you've done this, you've been on both sides of it. You know, I'd, the door would open. I'd say, "Can I speak to Jennifer or Kevin or Bill or whatnot?" and and likely a parent, most of the time, who was a military veteran or military uh, personnel, would say, you know, saw that I had the Obama stuff on and said, you know, what are you here for? What do you, what do you want to talk to my son or daughter for? And it was a really interesting experience because sometimes I would look over the shoulder of that parent and I'd see that young person kind of looking mm-hmm. and And you'd make that exchange and you'd say like, Hey, I know in your head, you're saying, I know you can't come down the stairs and you're probably blocked by a parent. And maybe you guys are having different sides of the political spectrum, but I got you kind of thing. And I think about when I used to write postcards, you know, I was in Hawaii and I remember picking up, I picked up, I think, an Atlantic uh, monthly, or I picked up a time magazine. It was very close to sort of the election time. And I went through and read articles about people in, you know, states in in the Midwest and p- people who were a little bit hesitant and not sure, and they were kind of on the fence. And, I, you know, I, I went even further. I, I, I Googled people's names in these small towns. To your point, I found their address, and I sent them a postcard from Hawaii. And I went on a limb, and I and I wrote this message on the back of these postcards and said, I know you don't know me. I'm a military officer. I'm in Hawaii. This is why I think you should vote for Barack Obama. You know, I read your article. It was very touching. Now, I don't know if those postcards made a difference or not, but, but it was important for me to do that. And I share all those stories from the standpoint of, I don't know if things like that are happening anymore. Are they? I mean, are people going door to door? Is this digital engagement thing completely taken over to the point
1: where if I send a postcard, is it going to matter? Yeah, it's it's all good points. And, you know, listening to you brings back a lot of fond memories from from '08 and, and 12, the reelect for President Obama and, and knocking on doors as well. And um, uh, so, you know, a, a couple of thoughts on that. I, I think in 2016, um, there was such an emphasis on data and modeling um, with the, the Hillary Clinton campaign, right? And running these scenarios with voter turnout, um Precinct by precinct and crunching the numbers. And, you know, Donald Trump didn't do any of that, right? Donald Trump had these big rallies with an overarching message, right? That everyone knew he was going to make America great again. Um, if you ask the average voter what Hillary Clinton's uh, motto was or what she was going to do, you know, they probably couldn't tell you. You know, it was stronger together, it was experience, it was, you know, they, they had message tested so many different uh, I'm with her. Um, she's with us, um, that there wasn't an overarching, unifying message, unfortunately, right? And so much of an an emphasis was put into tech, right? You had an entire floor in Brooklyn at the headquarters that was literally just running, you know, if it rains, you know, on election day in this precinct, you know, what are the numbers going to look like and stuff like that? And Donald Trump didn't do any of that, right? He went out there and he just gave these rallies, he, you know, he he said yes to every media interview. He had Fox News really fueling his rise, um, and, and so much donated media time, especially on CNN, even on MSNBC. Right. Um, and I think what we need to do is return to that Obama model, right? That person to person. And and I know, you know, you knocking on doors and being trained by the campaign to go do that. They didn't say, you know, I want you to go knock on that door and say. You know, Barack Obama will do XYZ. They said, and, I, and I'm sure they, right. they taught you to do this, Bill, you go to that door and you tell that individual voter why you yourself are voting for Barack Obama. Tell a story about your life. Tell them your story. Why exactly. You, exactly. 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 Which is something that, you know, a guy named Marshall Gans really pioneered. He's a, a traditional kind of labor, labor organizer out of Harvard that wasn't, you know, that, that kind of drilled home that message that. You know, you can say Barack Obama is going to pass health care. He's going to reinvest in the economy. He's going to, you know, save the auto industry. He's going to end. Don't ask, don't tell, you know, no, you go to that door and you say, you know, my, my mom just lost a job, you know, because she works, you know, in the automobile industry, right? That, that saved our, our family that raised, I was raised, you know, with that kind of support and that's gone now. And Barack Obama is going to do X, Y, Z to help that. And that's why I'm supporting him. And I think we need to go back to the time of storytelling, right? For better or for worse, Donald Trump is a storyteller, right? He knows how to manipulate the media. He knows how to create a narrative. Um, and, and somewhere along the line, we've lost that as Democrats. And we need to regain that, that same mentality when it comes to why Barack Obama was so successful. It's all about that personal interaction and that compelling story that's individual to you. Now, I think social media can have a A play for that, right? And it's a great outlet for folks to tell their own story. But again, it's that personal contact that I think we need to return to if we're going to be successful in 2020.
0: Yeah, I I, I certainly agree. And I think it's interesting how much um, what we're experiencing in the corporate world and in the nonprofit world and in the campaign world is actually kind of the same challenge. So, you know, I have the opportunity to work with a lot of corporations, And they're all going through digital transformation. It's kind of capital D, capital T, right? Like, in order for us to survive, in order for us to be disruptive and and attract new customers and consumers, we got to do this digital transformation. And the interesting thing, Kevin, as you're describing it, is the thing they're lacking and the thing they're suffering is storytelling. Everybody Mm -hmm. jumps on board with the technology. Everybody jumps on board with the benefits, the value, the return to investors, you know, return on investment. And... We get lost in all that. And then people kind of sit there and they say, hang on a second. Like, tell me a story. Like, where are we going? What
1: what are we going to learn?
0: Like, who are we going to be at the end of this? And you can get in front of a group of people. I mean, that's essentially what the power of podcasting is, right? I listen to a lot of podcasts. And when you can get someone on a platform who can convey information to you in the way of telling a
1: story, you just listen differently. I I think it's just the human condition thing. And you retain it too, Bill. You retain that. You, you know I can't tell you what you know, uh, Hillary Clinton's plans for the climate was, but I can tell you, you know Barack Obama's narrative, right and growing up with a single mom right. and that mom um, dying of, of, uh, of a, a terrible disease that they didn't have um, insurance for. And that was the compelling reason as to why he prioritized health care reform so early on after helping rescue the economy. I can tell you that story. I can't tell you emission standards that Secretary Clinton want to run on. Now, I, I was just with, you know, Secretary Clinton on Monday. I adore her. She should be the president of these of the United States. Right. And she's a compelling candidate. But I think we get lost oftentimes in not telling that story. Yeah. And I'm curious, like,
0: I, I, I wonder if, you know, as we're kind of talking about this, is it is there a risk here that there's going to be more stuff in between us and the story? So I think about, and, you know, I'd love for you to talk about sort of the four screen and i maybe I'm probably in methodology. I'll let you kind of correct me on that. But as I was looking at the way that you all approach in in your firm, you know, there's so much stuff between us now, right? There's yeah. like my, my devices, my TV, my, well, what is the four screen approach that you all kind of take? And, and, and I'll ask on the other side of that question how do we make sure that even though there's more stuff between us,
1: that the story can get through, Kevin? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, um, I think you've seen in, in traditional kind of political consulting, in the past, you you have on any campaign team, whether it be a presidential campaign, a campaign for Congress, what have you, you've got a pollster, right, that goes out there, gets a read of the, the um, community in which you're running, comes back with data, says, you know, your your voters care about X, Y, Z, um, turns that over to a mail firm that designs mail that drives home that message, turns it over to a TV firm that designs TV ads that fit that message, turns over to a field program, right, that knocks on these doors because we know these are our targets with that specific message. And that all happens relatively um, Uh, soon before an election, right? In November. So that happens maybe after Labor Day. And that's the way it was always, kind of always ran for decades. And TV was king, right? In terms of the nineties and two thousands with compelling TV ads that were poll tested because we knew this is the message that worked. Now, you know, Americans spend on average six hours a day online, half of that time in social media, right? Um, Companies, you know, we get so many cues um, from the corporate space in terms of politics. Half of their media spends are now online, right? That 10% of our media spends for political candidates are spent online, right? So corporate America is seeing that this conversation and the need to reach consumers is happening far much more online and digitally than in traditional TV and and radio and mail. Um, And they, they need to you know, they need to make a profit to survive, right? We need to elect our candidates, right? So it's a little bit of a different kind of mentality. If they don't do this, if they don't adapt, they die as a corporation. If we don't do this, we lose it. We lose a race, right? So it's a little bit different of a of a motivation. Or our shop and, and kind of why I came on board is really kind of meeting voters where they're at, right? Right. Um, Uh, and letting the voters dictate how we reach them. So, for example, if we're running in the state of of Connecticut, um, half of Connecticut voters live in the New York City media market in in the DMA. So if you want to purchase TV to reach them, you've got to talk to all these New Yorkers and a fraction of these Connecticut voters. So that doesn't make sense in terms of media spend because it's so many wasted dollars, right, on broadcast. Now, cable zones are a little different right? in terms of a little bit um, more specific targeting when it comes to cable television. But broadcast, there's 200-some-odd DMAs, which is a uh, a, broadcast area, and you buy on NBC and you're talking to everybody. So when you lived in in D.C., I'm sure you saw ads for Virginia and for Maryland because of that issue. So digital allows us to connect one-on-one in a more cost-efficient way. So there's zero bleed when it comes to media spend, that we're spending 100% of our resources online to voters in a one-to-one match that we know we need to reach that can actually vote for our, our gal or our guy. So we approach any of our media spends working with a candidate or a cause on you know, where these voters are at. Does it make sense to reach them on television? Does it make sense to reach them on programmatic radio, for example? Right? Are they on Spotify? Are they on Pandora? Does it make sense to them to to reach them um, online when it comes to social media, or you know, in their in-browser advertising or in-app advertising on their mobile devices? So, aside from many, I think firms in this space that you know have a preconceived notion of all right, we're going to spend 60% on TV. We're going to spend 20% on mail. We're going to spend 10% on a field program and 10% online. We say, what are the voters that we need to reach to win? What's our win number? And how do we find those folks? And is it more cost-effective to do cable with digital, with some radio? Is it more effective like in Connecticut to just do 100% digital because TV is so inefficient when it comes to broadcast? That's when we kind of have this four screen world mentality. It's how do we incorporate TV, tablet, mobile device and desktop, right? So, where are these voters spending the majority of their time and how can we reach and persuade them in a really compelling way?
0: No, that's very helpful to kind of hear you break that down and it it makes me it it makes me wonder at the same time, you know, What are when you're out there talking to people and I love the fact that you said meet voters where they're at. I mean, that's definitely sort of a uh a truism that that rings to me. Uh very similar in my world, right? I support people going through change and my whole, you know, mantra is often meet people where they're at, um, which requires you to have some curiosity and some empathy and um, you know, to really to really do the work before you go in and tell people or tell anyone, hey, you're gonna change and you need to you you need to do this. It's probably the same for voters. So as you think about that aspect of meeting them where they're at, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how can voters um, what what can what can citizens do, constituents do to sort of better empower themselves to to kind of navigate this world a little better? Because I feel right now we're still a bit of a victim to some of the things we talked about before. And there's this trust you know, quotient that's not there yet. But as you think about organizations like yours saying we are doing it differently so we can meet voters where they're at Um, and candidates can meet voters where they're at. So what would be your advice to people like me who, granted, you know, uh, have been very involved in the past, currently in a place of pause and reflect and disengage uh-huh. Sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, and try and regain trust. But that happens like bite by bite, Kevin, for me, like, yeah. it's, it's a you process. know, it is hard and it takes time. So I would love to, to take your, your thoughts in the sense of when you're out there on the road and you're talking to voters or you're at the, you know, as you mentioned, you're at the debate and you've been at a couple, um, you know, events for former Vice President Biden and, um, you know, former Secretary Clinton. And, what are the conversations you have with people when they say, "How do I, how do I do this?" Like, you know, what are the things that they can do as as voters and citizens to get more comfortable with the change that we know is happening, but we also know requires a different,
1: uh, a different amount of trust. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, that's that's the question, right? Um, uh, and and there's no easy solutions. I I think it comes back to what you were telling me before about. Um, how passionate you were when you were serving in, in Hawaii um, about the '8 election right and taking it upon yourself to do some research and to write those postcards and connect one not even knowing if folks necessarily were going to see it, but knowing that this is what was driving you to engage and 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 really feeling fulfilled in that process um, I think we need to return to that you know I give the example of you know, my, my aunt, uh, who I love and adore, um, she's been a lifelong Republican um, her whole life. She lives in Pennsylvania, a key battleground state. Um, and in the lead up to the midterms elect- election, she's never voted Democrat. Now, she told me uh, she would have voted for Joe Biden over um, Donald Trump had he, he run in 2016 and was the nominee. Um, but I, I, I you know took it upon myself to write her a long note, right, about why uh, why personally the midterms are so important to me, right? Um, and why she, I, you know, my vote didn't matter. I live in Washington D.C. We've got a, a delegate right. Right, to the House with no power, um, but she was in a in a split district um, that actually turned blue for the first time. Um, she was in Madeline Dean's um, district. She was the first first time. Um, uh, uh, a Congresswoman serving in the suburbs of Philadelphia. She's an incredible woman. She served in uh, Harrisburg in the state legislature before that. Now she's on judiciary, kind of leading the charge with um, providing oversight to this administration. I I, I say that because I wrote my aunt a note. I didn't say, you know, we need to do X, Y, Z in terms of oversight. We've got to hold this administration accountable. I said why it was so important for me to have a Democratic House right? As an openly gay person, right? Worried about the future of what this president is doing when it comes to LGBT equality issues around education, um, voter access, um, discriminatory policies in, in the federal government, right? Um, as a grandmother of uh, a young woman um, herself that struggles with body issues, right? And seeing what this president does uh, when, when it comes to women, right? And, and just the lack of decorum that we've seen and the fact that our kids are watching. Um, and we've seen this transformation in our society because of the harm that this president has done. So I wrote this letter um, in hopes that she would, you know, take her one vote, right, in a really important district and, and change that. Um, so she, she didn't tell me what, I, I think she, she came my way, uh, I hope, because uh, I'm, I'm going to help her move out of her house in a, in a week and a half, so she better have done that. Um, but again, that, it's that one personal contact, and you know, you yourself are struggling, as you, as you say, with just the onslaught of news and, and the need to turn it out. And I, and I think returning to that mentality that you had, you know, a decade ago, when you're serving in Hawaii, right, and you're knocking on doors in, in Virginia, and the empowerment that you felt being passionate about a candidate or a cause, um, I think is what we need to return to. You know, Joe Biden says, you know, we're the United States. We got to pick ourselves off the ground. Right. We know that, you know, there were three million more Americans, for example, that voted for Secretary Clinton than Donald Trump. Right. We're the majority. Right. It's Democrat. Yeah. Um, There are far many more votes for senators of the Democratic Party when you total them up than the Republican Party. So right now, this this country is is ruled by minority rule. Right. And when we have fair lines right in when it comes to gerrymandering. When we have free and fair elections that aren't influenced by big money, we know that we can win, right? I was in a gun debate yesterday um, with uh, Seb Gorka, who, you know, worked for the Trump administration. Um, And they're, you know, saying all of the the tried and true lines on their side to say why we can't do anything with regards to guns. But we know 90% of Americans, um, you know, favor background checks, 65% support and assault weapons ban. We're the major- majority when it comes to these issues. Um, and it's just a matter of standing up and fighting, and it's that one-to-one contact that we do every day in terms of political consultants and making compelling ads that really show, don't tell. Like That's our, our mentality when it comes to um, you know, uh, these ads that are compelling for candidates, right? We, uh, I hate an ad where a candidate just stands up there for 30 seconds and tells people what they're going to do. No, show what you're going to do, right? Show what's in your background that makes you a compelling candidate and the best person to deliver on these issues. That's the mentality that we have when we, we create advertising, um, when it, when it, you know, when it goes out to the masses. Um, so that's a whole roundabout, uh, answer, I think to, your original uh, positive, you know, how can an individual person get involved um, during this kind of these, these really trying times in our, in our society's history? I really appreciate
0: the answer. I mean, personally and, and, and for others, because, you know, the word that I have heard you use a couple of times uh, was compelling and compelled. And it's really interesting because that's the struggle that I've had, which is I am so compelled. But part of me feels that challenge that I think a lot of us do, which is i am I really going to change things on a one to one and I think the answer is yes, and i 'm hearing you say yes, it is, and that 's what we need so follow that, uh, follow that sense of being compelled and, and follow that passion and continue to have those conversations. So I appreciate you you sharing that and sort of giving me a little bit more hope and light back into that. Um, and it also goes back to the aspect of be true to you. I mean, know what's genuine and don't, you know, yes, there's a lot of stuff coming at us, but you have a choice in how you interact and how you show up and how you react to ads and react to even the news cycle. And as you and I, before the podcast, were talking about, yeah, I've, I've chosen to sort of step back a little bit so I can do more reflection and, um, you know, recharge the batteries in a way to have those deeper conversations with people and not be in the noise, um, which I think is really important. Um, As we get ready to wrap up here, I would love to ask you one more question, which I think is, which is a really interesting one. I've started to ask a few people, um, how do you achieve balance and rejuvenation? Um, I mean, obviously, as you talked about, you're in a lot of areas of uh debate discussion influence um you know you're on tv you're on radio uh these are all things that take an incredible amount of energy um how do you as a leader restore rejuvenate balance would just love to hear your perspective and some of your tips
1: oh gosh uh well i pretty unsuccessfully um recently so i um uh, you know, I, something you said earlier, being a student of history, I mean, I I love to read. Uh, that's kind of where I get centered. Um, it helps me with debates, not just, you know, obviously reading the newspaper or trying to every morning, um, but, uh, um, but also, you know, reading history, right? Because um, I think we oftentimes... Um, think because we're in the moment that this is the darkest time, right, for American society with Donald Trump as president and how divided we are as a country. Um, and if you just read back our, our recent history, right, um, you know, with how difficult 1968 was, for example, right, just 50 years ago yeah. um, with the, the fight for civil rights and the riots in the street. And the you know the murder of Martin Luther King Jr. and the murder of Bobby Kennedy, um, and the you know five years previously the murder of uh, John F. Kennedy. Um, you think as a country that you know uh, we're in the darkest times uh, because we're so in the moment. And being a student of history, I think gives you some pause uh, and and helps to center that we've had really difficult times. We fought a civil war right um, in the past. Um, and we've come out stronger, right? And there are divisions in our society, but be a bridge builder, right? Is, is my mentality. That's why, as a Democrat, I go on, you know, Fox News. Um, I don't, you know, um, I don't write anyone off, right? Uh, no matter how sometimes um, negative and vile, and you know, folks' mentalities and, and comments are. Now, you got to call people out when it's overt racism, homophobia, sexism, what have you. Um, and not obviously support um, or, or defend any of those mentalities, but you got to reach people where they're at. And, and I think, you know, reading helps center me um, and, and helps to keep things in perspective. Family's also so, so important. Um, my, my mom is my best barometer, my best judge of character. Um, I'll usually get, um, you know, when I'm on the way to the studio or something like that, the prompt of, as to why, what we're talking about in um, that particular TV interview, and I'll call her for her perspectives. And 80% of the time, I use her, her, something she has said, um, just because I think... Great. She, yeah, yeah, she she lives in Delaware. Um, she's not super political. And I think that's how we need to reach people, right, is, is how do we personalize it to their everyday lives um, as voters and as citizens. And she's a great barometer of that. Um, it provides great insights where I get so oftentimes worked up and kind of in this bubble in Washington, D.C., and not really connecting with, you know, what voters really care about. I mean, the fact that, you know, great example is uh, last Thursday with the debates in Houston, right? You had 10 really compelling candidates on that stage, live from Houston, and at the same time, more Americans were watching Thursday night football than that presidential debate, right? And we, we got to keep that in perspective, right? It's also very early in the process, but the vast majority of Americans will engage in politics you know, around election time, but they, they care about their lives. They care about entertainment. They care about their kids, their families. Um, and they're not really so high strung when it comes to politics. And we got to remember that because that's the audience we need to reach um, to, to, to kind of compel them to get involved and, and to stay involved. Um, so that, you know, is kind of a long, long-winded answer to, to how do I stay a little balanced in life? I know, I think it's a great
0: answer. I mean, um, reading for sure, staying close to the ones you love for sure. Um, Because you're right, I think it does anchor us in um, sort of, and it's important to understand where we've come from in order to understand where we're going. Um, And then you're right, in times of duress or times of uncertainty or ambiguity, Right. We turn to the ones we love, um, the ones that know mm-hmm. us the best. And, um, you know, every citizen, as we talk about citizens, every voter as we talk about voter, every voter citizen is a son, brother, daughter, mother-in-law, you know, partner, husband, wife, all of these people. So I totally agree um, on that
1: aspect. That's awesome. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, again, just meeting people where they're at and, and being authentic, I think, is, is also really important, too.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you very much. This was tremendous. Um, thank you for your time. And uh, I look forward to, to hearing more and watching how things progress uh, this, next, uh, this next year, for sure. So thank you for the time, Kevin. Awesome, Bill. It was really great to talk to you. I hope you enjoyed that discussion with Kevin on a topic that was pretty timely. The power of storytelling is an important lesson to take away from that discussion, and I hope you can weave it into however makes sense for you as a citizen, a constituent, a candidate, a voter, or someone working on a campaign. Thanks for listening.